Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hazmat Hotel. I'm your host, Leah Goldman, recording from Bergen County, New Jersey. That's North Jersey. For all of you who are unfamiliar, we are right over the GW Bridge from New York City. It's been pretty grueling here and in the city, as you all know, but we are hanging tough. We are just a few hours away from Passover here in Casa Goldman. And if you're like me, it's going to be a disappointing year, not what any of us had in mind, but we will persevere. It's one or two days, depending on how you celebrate. We'll see each other on the other side eventually. We just have to keep going, hang tight, shelter in place, keep quarantining, doing what you're doing. This is a show about people whose lives, careers, professions, industries have been upended by coronavirus in ways you wouldn't expect. And so today I have a very special guest. I'm really honored and humbled to have had a chance to talk to her, Beth Roxland. She's a bioethicist based in New York City, and she helped shepherd New York State's ventilator allocation guidelines. You've heard a lot about these in the news, I'm certain. What happens in the event of catastrophe, calamity, apocalypse, and there simply aren't enough ventilators to go around. Who gets one? Who doesn't? Who makes the call? Beth has all the answers. She wrote the book, so to speak, and it's a really fascinating, timely, urgent conversation, I would I would say. And in terms of how this affects the world going forward, you cannot tell me when this is all said and done that cities across the world won't be adopting emergency response plans for a pandemic, for an act of terror, whatever the case may be. But New York State is leading the way, so I'm excited to talk to Beth about it. Hang in. I have Memorial Day in my mind's eye. It's right around the corner, folks. Memorial Day is right around the corner. The weather's getting warmer. I see folks outside taking their daily constitution in T-shirts and shorts even. We are so close. We're already a month in. Look what we've done. Can we give ourselves a pat on the back for that? I think we can. So if you celebrate Passover, have an enjoyable, meaningful one. And if it's not meaningful, it's all right. You get another shot next year. Happy Easter. Let's do this, folks. Stand by for Beth. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Hazmat Hotel. I am here with Beth Roxland. Beth Roxland is an attorney and bioethicist in New York, where she advises law firms, medical centers, and research groups on bioethics. She was Johnson & Johnson's bioethics and strategy leader in the office of their chief medical officer. And before that, she was the executive director of the New York State Task Force on Life and the Law. And before I explain why that's so important, I want to tell everybody that Beth and I went to college together. And we have stayed in touch with each other on and off over the years. And last week, Beth posted on Facebook something that caught my eye. Beth talked about how surreal and unnerving it was to hear policymakers, journalists, and clinicians discuss the project I led for years. What project was that? Beth played a huge role in the ventilator guidelines for New York State, the ventilator guidelines that we're hearing so much about. What happens in a catastrophic crisis situation, not unlike the one we're in? What happens when there's a shortage of ventilators? She wrote the book. So we're going to talk to Beth about the guidelines, how they came to be, how she became a bioethicist, what that means exactly, and what that means for policy and for the actual guidelines themselves. So let's just get to it. Beth, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I want to just start with your background. You have to explain to me because I'm I'm an, I'm naive about this. What is a bioethicist? That's actually um, a challenging question. Um, a bioethicist could actually be a range of backgrounds of expertise 
and a range of functions. Bioethics is generally the ethics of science or medicine, but people approach it with a background in philosophy, with a background in medicine, you know, doctors, other sorts of clinicians, people from a legal background, like, like myself with a law degree, public health. And you could also be doing a range of activities, advising, let's say, on a hospital level, being sort of a, a clinical ethicist in the, in the medical area, sort of bedside ethics, clinical consultations, mediations between family who may uh, disagree about treatment for a loved one who's incapacitated. You could do it from a public health angle, which is I think, what we're here to talk about today. And what's uh, growing, as I see, increasingly both necessary and useful is bioethics as it respects research, clinical trials for drug development, gene therapy, stem cell therapy, precision medicine. How do you re reconcile sort of different ethical tensions, do the most good, think through in a multidisciplinary way the best ways to proceed? And so bioethics can be a range of different things. It's not just one thing. And um, my hope personally is that it continues to grow and be clear in the value add to these various fields and entities. So let, let's talk about the ventilator guidelines. I actually read the report. It's rather lengthy. It's like 274, 276 mm. pages. I highly recommend everybody read it. It's available. Just Google it. It's very easy to find. And it's very, very thorough. I mean, it, it is a very thorough document in my in my layman estimation, but, but I, I found it very interesting. The actual first iteration of these guidelines were commissioned in 2007, as I understand it. That was under Governor Spitzer from New York. And then they were updated, which is when you came on board in 2015. Is that correct? Somewhat correct. So actually, the original guidelines were, um, as I understand it, commissioned in 2006 by, I believe, the governor at the time, led and sort of um, deferred to the New York State Task Force in Life and the Law, which is New York State's Bioethics Commission. They released after enormous amounts of consensus building. They released a draft in 2007, but this project actually started uh, before, before I came on board and substantial work was done, particularly on the ethics of how you deal with a pandemic and allocation of potentially scarce resources. In 2007, I came on board first as a lawyer for the commission and then acting director and then executive director of the, the task force and then led the, the very heavy revision and supplementation of the report that resulted in the 2015 publication. What's, what's so very striking about it is how prescient it is. It, it, it literally articulates the moment we are in. It's astonishing. I mean, it presents, you know, the what if scenario, what if there's a pandemic? What if it's unlike anything we have seen before in this city in our lifetimes? What if it happens so quickly and catastrophically we run out of resources? It presents a scenario that's hauntingly familiar hauntingly familiar right now and and that's in part why surreal is sort of the best word i've come up with because as we were working on it as as i was working on it you really do have to imagine 
the worst case scenario. One of the ethical principles that drove this project, and I, do, I don't want to not give due credit to the many other states groups that also produced very comprehensive pandemic preparedness reports, but there is a duty to plan. The government has a duty to plan for rather foreseeable crises, and particularly in New York, the, uh, it, it plays out whether it's a pandemic flu or bioterrorism or any kind of terrorism. New York, as we all know, is, is a target, but we also have very, very strong resources in terms of healthcare, in terms of brain power and thoughtful leadership. You know, the, the, this report was certainly not uh, a particularly easy one, either from the clinical side, the ethical side, or the legal side. There's some wrenching what if scenarios that are tackled in the guidelines, but I want you to do a little table setting for us on what you know, how it comes to be, because, you know, you read the list of participants in this commission, in this task force, it's a rather lengthy compendium of not just attorneys and not just doctors, but also clergy from all mm -hmm. different faiths. And it's, it's a really well-rounded cast of characters. And I'm trying to understand how that works, how you, how you gather their input on what in particular are you gathering their input? How did that work, you know, trying to lead this group of different stakeholders? This commission, the New York State Task Force on Life and the Law, is the oldest and, to my knowledge, the only standing state bioethics commission. It was actually convened by executive order in 1985 by Gov then Governor Cuomo, our governor's father. It, it was meant to actually influence public policy on issues related to medicine, law, and ethics, particularly with a focus on end-of-life issues. To me, even just the idea of putting together a multidisciplinary commission to attempt to reconcile different societal views on some of the most difficult issues was in and of itself visionary. It actually speaks to me volumes for Governor Cuomo Sr. Um, <laughs> that, that he took the, the efforts to put together a commission of this sort in an attempt to have really thoughtful guidance on what are the most difficult issues to, to handle. The members of this commission are appointed by the governor, and they are basically appointed for life. It should be mostly apolitical to the extent possible, such that there's not turnover every administration, and it's very purposefully com comprised of, of people from different backgrounds and different types of expertise, so that when you're approaching difficult issues that involve law, medicine, societal viewpoints, everybody brings something to the table. And the, the goal is to attempt to reach some form of consensus amongst people who fundamentally see things from different perspectives and make thoughtful recommendations after vetting and speaking through these default issues. This was a very, very heavy undertaking that involved convening outside work groups and a number of other efforts. And, and with a, a very tiny staff <laughs> to boot. 
there were many efforts not only to get and gather expertise, but also to incorporate public values and public reaction to what are altered standards of care, crisis standards of care that are very different from what we're used to. I mean, that, that I think is really the heart of, heart of these guidelines. Having read them, there are explicit guidelines here. And what most struck me about them is first and foremost, the, the goal could not be more clear. And it's, and it's referenced throughout the guidelines. Our goal is to save as many lives as possible. There is no other agenda. And everything is driven from that place. Our goal is to save as many lives as possible. And so given that, what I find most incredible about the document is the extraordinary pains it takes to to, um, metabolize different approaches to this problem, to weigh them, to consider them, to reject them, to explain why they won't work until until the guidelines arrive at, at at a reasonable method uh, in the middle of the madness that it presents. So for example, and you're going to, you're going to help explain this for me. It consider, <laughs> it considers what if, what if we did vent- ventilator allocation on a first come first serve basis? Yes. And it rationalizes what that would look like and why that can't work in New York. It explains what happens if we run a lottery system, what would that look like? And here's why it won't work. You know, why we can't consider age in, in those decisions. It really goes to great lengths to articulate what won't work. All these great ideas people have, these, why don't you do it this way? Why don't you do it that way? But you guys really like enumerate why, why we took an idea and why we have to reject that idea. You've articulated it so well that I'm almost hesitant <laughs> to, <laughs> um, to, to uh, explain further, but the, the literature and the thought processes that many, many learned, thoughtful people have put into how one should allocate or how society should allocate scarce resources in the event of a crisis, any kind of crisis, we did our best to address them, to, to vet them, to think through them. And, and it wasn't just in writing. This was in consensus building meetings with people who did believe that age should be prioritized or societal role should be prioritized. Um, By societal role, I just want to clarify, because there's some ink that's devoted to whether or not we should prioritize first responders, should a first responder. And it's interesting and it's worth reading. And I, you know, we won't get into it here, but it's worth reading how that is even considered and put to paper. I should note, because these are guidelines and very explicitly um, state that this is meant as a framework. And yes, it's meant to influence policy and give leaders a framework for considering policy. The way a specific crisis plays out, the task force did its best to come up with the most reasonable, most comprehensive, most thoughtful way to proceed. But it doesn't mean that it is going to fit perfectly for every crisis. And there are certain things in these guidelines that wouldn't necessarily uh, be appropriate. I'm not necessarily weighing in on exactly what would be more or less appropriate, but it's supposed to be a living document. It's supposed to be thorough guidance, but not, not like the letter of the law, because we don't know how things, you know, what the pandemic will be, what the emergency will be, what the situation is like. 
Right. So a couple of points of clarification. These are guidelines. They are not law. The hospital system is not required to hew to them. Am I to understand you correctly? These are simply, you know, helpful resources for organizations who might be confronted with this very tragic reality and will help them undertake the decision of how to allocate those ventilators because someone else has thought this through for you. Here are guidelines we recommend. Yes. And not just healthcare systems, but governmental entities. There's lengthy discussions in the task force report on declarations of emergency, of uh, movement and coordination of resources prior to, and this is actually a very important point, before you even get to how you would allocate ventilators, we want to do everything we possibly can to not get to that point. So the, the report starts out with a, a hearty discussion of how to free up resources in the best way possible, including things that we are now hearing has been happening during this pandemic, such as the cancellation of elective surgeries, surge capacity in the workforce, mobilizing the workforce, coordination also between states, potentially between hospital entities, so that whatever the scarce resource is, they may be able to mobilize, let's say in this case, ventilators are not being used in one area and move it to an area that's that's being hit very hard. So there's there are a lot of recommendations that come before the actual part where we're starting to talk about how how you allocate ventilators, which is the point you never want to reach, but obviously has to be planned for. But I, I do want to emphasize that there's a lot that comes before that in this report and elsewhere to avoid these situations that we never want to see and, and experience. The other thing that struck me about this document, and it, despite its length, and there's a lot of it's, jargon, medical jargon, technical certainly. jargon, I was very struck by its humanity. You know, if you're a doctor who's trying to treat patients in the middle of this, that's actually not the person you necessarily want to make the decision about who to pull off a ventilator or who how to allocate those resources. They are too close to the material. And so there's a very explicit framework about how doctors can assess patients, document that assessment, and let a third party come in and make that decision so as to alleviate that burden from the person closest to care. And I was very struck by that, about how humane a decision that was. One of the main issues that we're actually seeing play out right now to to a very almost disturbing point is the emotional toll uh, physical toll too, but it's certainly emotional toll on clinicians. In the case of this pandemic, they're also obviously short, a lot of protective you know, PPE and whatnot. The clinicians uh, are human and they have ethical obligations that they've been adhering to and trained to adhere to their entire career, which is the duty to care for, for their patient. Uh, they are also witnessing potentially a massive death and in and of itself, very, very difficult. And we want to prevent as much as, as humanly possible additional burnout of the 
experts and the, 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 the clinicians who are basically upholding society at this point by saving ill people. Uh, and one of the toughest recommendations and one that's frankly been misconstrued a number of times is exactly the recommendation you're talking about, which is the triage committee. So the report gives a, quite a bit of clinical detail on how to assess patients given how ill they are, how likely they are to survive. I'm not a doctor. People can, you know, the, the clinicians can read the report, but there it, it goes into great detail about how to assess patients. But from there, the, the idea that the clinician who has an ethical duty to treat their patient by guidelines, by hospital, by whatever, is advised to extubate the patient because they are unlikely to survive the pandemic. And there are three other people who also need the scarce resource, not only make that decision and, and do the, the extubation is much too much to ask. It, frankly, it's too much to ask for out of an entire system. But a crisis is a crisis. Hopefully, we won't face here. But that's you know what is envisioned. Once their clinician has assessed them, the triage committee makes that decision as to who gets the ventilators, who gets the scarce resource, and or whether somebody should um, be taken off of a ventilator. It's been phrased as the death squad. Um, you know right. the, the the death the, panels. The, the death panel and. It, it, the flip side, however, is exactly as you framed it. Is it feasible to put those decisions on the doctor to keep the goal of saving the, the most lives, prevent physicians from completely emotionally burning out and or going against their own duties to care for their patients. It, it, it's not an unfeeling situation. It is not a death squad. Look, it, it's it's horrendous. There, there's there's really no way to get around what these decisions are and what they may result in. But the goal is to attempt to save the most lives systematically and thoughtfully. Yes. Um, and, and I have to say, it's remarkable how the guidelines go out of their way to ensure that patients are not pitted against each other. That, you know, yes. no one who is a more charismatic patient or has more family members calling or has, you know, any sort of number of things that may or may not work in their favor, that that somehow influences the outcome beyond whether the ventilator could produce a better outcome you know, just a medical outcome. It's a really, I, I mean, this is why I say it, it's worth reading the document. It's a very humane set of guidelines. It's very explicit in this way. It's unfortunate. I mean, there have been a lot of misleading statements that have come out of this whole, uh, you know, this whole crisis, certainly with regard to the ventilator guidelines. That is one of them, the assumption that these death panels are deciding who lives and who dies, which is a complete misreading of the document. Uh, a complete just kind of whitewashing of the nuance of it all. I've read multiple times that the guidelines urge purchasing more ventilators mm -hmm. and that, you know, the leadership of the, of the state ignored those 
ignored the recommendations and did not purchase. And this is not what the document says, certainly not in my reading of it. Yes, you brought up a number of very good issues, and I, I, I don't want to lose any of them. One of the first things you, you said, which is an important point made in the document, is that the the framework set up does not pit patient against patient. You're, if you have a 65-year-old and a 30-year-old, what, what, what would the guidelines do? Or would you take the 65-year-old person off of a ventilator to, to give it to a 35-year-old person? The commission took pains to be clear that this does not pit one against the other. It, it is more of a understanding that there are numerous patients that have been triaged. You treat the, the person who's on the ventilator fairly and assess them fairly per, per the guidelines, but it's not a one-to-one one decision being made there. And that's that's a really important point that has been, I think, misconstrued or at least just misunderstood. The other point that you said about prioritization of certain types of people, some of the feedback that, that we got from the public and elsewhere was, you know, was, well, if someone is, is wealthy, if someone is well-connected, if someone plays a certain role in, in life, in society, if they have a number of dependents, i.e. a parent, should they be prioritized over somebody who's uh, in, single and, and you know no relatives or who's not a healthcare worker or not on the front lines or you know, a number of things that end up at the end of the day being subjective. And to the extent possible, we need to remove as much subjectivity as possible especially in a crisis situation, you remove the, the judgments of who deserves to live, who deserves the ventilator from a, you know, from a subjective viewpoint and instead look only at chances of survival. One of the points that I've been hearing in the media and elsewhere was that the, the commission pointed out that there would not be enough ventilators in the event of a severe pandemic. And that is true. The report, as you noted before, goes through the, the mild scenario, the moderate scenario, and the most severe scenario, like the 1918 flu scenario. In the event of the most severe scenario, it is foreseen and foreseeable that there would not be enough ventilators or resources should that once in a lifetime situation take place. But there is a very big difference between saying that the commission noted that there would not be enough resources and that the commission said and or there was a recommendation that there should have been purchasing and stockpiling of enough ventilators for that situation. What it what the report does is attempt to guide every possible way of shoring up available resources so that we don't run out of ventilators. Again, you know, surge capacity, cancellation of elective surgeries, movement of ventilators to hot spots that may not have them, accessing not only the state stockpiles, but the federal stockpiles. But 
one of the main issues with potentially just buying a lot of ventilators to ever prevent the situation that we may be facing now is that ventilators are a very expensive or relatively expensive. They take up a, a decent amount of space. They require oxygen and other resources. And specifically, they also require clinicians who can operate the ventilators. There is a lot, not only would the ventilators be scarce, but if we had enough ventilators, first of all, under normal circumstances, where would we be storing them? A, under a crisis scenario, a good portion of the clinicians themselves would be ill and not be able to operate all the ventilators that we possibly had. And we know that healthcare budgets and resources are not unlimited. And so should every last dollar go to the buying of ventilators for a scenario that hopefully never occurs? Or, or should those, those dollars have gone to other healthcare resources that are more likely to be needed in the near term or in the long term? I've heard a lot of sort of finger pointing that that all that ventilators should have been bought already, and that's what this task force said, and that's not precisely what the task force said. I, I mean, I don't want to speak for them, but I, I would encourage reading the report because there is again a very big difference between noting that there would be a shortage and leaping to the conclusion that therefore they should have been purchased already. One of the other elements of this of the guidelines that I, th- I thought were prescient was the legal considerations discussion. There's a lengthy uh, discussion of legal issues that healthcare workers confront and and are especially relevant in a crisis situation like the one we're facing. And one of the the suggestions happened just last week. So we're taping in early April, and just last week, Governor Andrew Cuomo um, passed legislation granting immunity from criminal and civil prosecution, if I'm using the term correctly, for healthcare workers responding in in the crisis. In other words, if you are a healthcare worker presented with these unthinkable choices that you cannot be held accountable by a criminal or civil court for that decision. And I, I thought that was remarkable. I think it's gotten a little lost in the shuffle of this news deluge that we are in right now, mm-hmm. but I thought it was an important one. And it was it was noted in your report. It was very clearly a recommendation that we should pass these laws so that that's one less burden on our healthcare workers as they proceed in this terrible situation. The task force report itself has an entire chapter devoted to legal issues that spans everything from declarations of emergency and what those entail, both on the federal side and the state side, and then also delves into the potential for liability, both civil and criminal. One other area that it it also uh, touches on, or more than touches on, flags a number of statutes and or I guess even common law that may be in conflict with altered standards of care. a very big tension between what crisis standards of care would recommend and what normal law or law under normal circumstances would um, require, including, frankly, informed consent or healthcare proxies to make decisions on behalf of patients. There's a lot of talk about DNR orders. We saw that situation play out 
in the Hurricane Katrina situation. And actually, because of the criminal prosecution of the doctor, Dr. Poe, um, who was, if you recall, the physician who was left basically with a very small staff in the hospital in Hurricane Katrina and had to make decisions that were extremely, extremely difficult in total isolation without information, but also without sleep and other resources, was then criminally prosecuted, or at least they attempted to criminally prosecute, I believe, they attempted, there was an attempt to get a grand jury indictment and the grand jury refused to indict. But either way, that situation was one of the main motivations to go to the lengths we did to address legal issues involved in what could be an altered standard of care situation. Um, also, because I'm a litigator and a lawyer by background, <laughs> I you know, definitely wanted to address that. Liability for clinicians is an issue at all times, even under normal um, situations. Under, under these conditions, it's certainly heightened, especially when we're asking clinicians and hospital systems to change the way they normally deliver, provide care. It's a very different framework from going from treating the individual patient, focusing solely on the individual patient to both focusing on the patient and focusing on the larger population at the same time. What a what a monumental undertaking. I have to ask you about the mental toll that this that this project took on you personally. What was it like? <laughs> what was it like to deal with these just just wrenching wrenching issues, and then to go home and try to lead a normal life, to have dinner with friends and family, to you know, how do you compartmentalize something like this? Is it possible even, or did it just stay with you? These sorts of situations, and not that they come along very often, um, very much stay with you. I think in part why I've been um, so struck by what is unfolding right now is because we, the commission, and uh, and many others who've devoted a lot of time to this situation had really tried to put themselves in a situation of thinking about, frankly, mass death and then to actually watch it play out, you're brought back to the the state of mind where you where you were thinking about what mass death actually looks like and feels like to the physicians, to the patients, to their loved ones. It, it definitely does stay with you. That said, while I appreciate the sympathy in the question that you're asking me. I I have it technically much easier than the frontline providers have it right now, and certainly don't want to have any self pity for for what it was like to have to think about these things when we're we have frontline providers who are trying to make decisions without this guidance without. You know, as I understand it, and this is anecdotal, but without any guidance, they they've got it very, very hard right now. And frankly, the one of the main reasons we went through this multi-year, multi-layer exercise 
was specifically to avoid a situation where the frontline providers and or the hospitals individually were trying to figure this out in the middle of a crisis. Mm-hmm. It was specifically to give a framework to make the decisions at least somewhat easier to be able to justify them ethically, morally, clinically, legally. And so if anyone's got it really difficult and unable to, you know, leave work at work and and go home, it's <laughs> the people who are dealing with this right now with very little support and very little comfort, no less other physical hazards that they they're encountering. Great point. Nonetheless, it's like I've said since we started this interview, it's a very thorough, considered guidelines. And it's clear just listening to you speak how thoughtful and considered you are. And it's reassuring, actually. I find it reassuring that someone like you helped, you know, Hmm. play a pivotal role in shepherding these guidelines because, man, they are something else. They are something else. I, I thank you and I appreciate it. I have to give due credit both to what was a tiny, tiny staff that were themselves working 24-7 on this. We also had a couple of interns that dedicated much time to this. And the task force itself, which is voluntary, unpaid, you know, people who are extremely dedicated to these issues, while I definitely put in my fair share of a lot of work and as much thought as as I could in this. This is not a one-person project, and that's actually part of why I think these guidelines are as strong as they are, is because this was, you know, multidisciplinary, multiple input, very intensive project. But I, I do appreciate the the compliment, and I do hope that people do at least read as much as possible of this, even though it is lengthy, I would um, recommend at least reading the executive summary. One can not necessarily read through all 273 pages, but look at the table of contents to see the issues that are addressed and flip to them if they would like more information on them. And also to reach out to either the task force itself, the Department of Health, or me personally, you know, as I am. Great. Beth Roxland, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your insight and your wisdom. I very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.